Hi, I'm Lauren. And I'm Charlotte. Our pronouns are she, her. This is Demyth Turns the Page. Our special episodes where we tap into our magic. We learn who to trust. And we talk to our amazing guest, Emily Lloyd-Jones, about their novel, The Drowned Woods. Hi, Emily. Thank you so much for coming to talk to us today. Hi. So glad to be here. Before we get started, would you tell our listeners about yourself? My name is Emily Lloyd-Jones. My pronouns are she, her. I live in Northern California with two cats. I've been writing young adult novels for almost 10 years now. This is my sixth published one, The Drowned Woods. And I'm super excited to be talking with you today. What kind of books do you like to read? I read a little bit of everything. I'm currently on a cozy mystery kick because I'm trying to find new series for my mother to read. So I've been reading a bunch of cozy mystery series, a lot of them set in London because my mother loves to travel, but obviously we haven't been able to travel as much lately. And I also love nonfiction because a lot of nonfiction informs my writing. So that's currently what I've been doing is a lot of books on nature and cozy mysteries. We're so here for anything that's set in London. So I like the fact you're reading Cozy Mysteries set here. We need to talk about the cover of the book because the cover is absolutely stunning. Got a mysterious sort of island in the sea, which we don't really know much about when you first look at it. And there's some treasure down the bottom, which again, we don't really know much about it, but you get a sense of real magic, I think. And the we're looking at the UK cover here and the sort of pink sky is is so pretty, so, so pretty. You definitely get an air of mystery and magic from the from the cover. I was so excited when I first saw the cover. Um, when it showed up in my inbox, I legit had to put my computer down for a second and just quietly scream because it was so beautiful. I love the sunset colors and I actually live right next to an ocean. So a lot of the sunsets that I look at when I go for walks along the headlands look like those colors. So it was just really satisfying to see them on a book that is very much ocean themed. It must be nice to sort of send you write this thing that you put so much love and effort into and have someone create a cover that you are so happy with. It's a very nice feeling. I've been very lucky with all of my book covers so far. I've never actually had one I hated. So I'm very grateful for that. I've had some really talented artists take some of my visions and put them on the cover. And it's just always really fun to see. Would you tell someone if you hated the cover? Uh, I actually would. (laughs) Not the artist, but um, there I have, you know, an agent, there are editors, there are people you can talk to to be like, this isn't quite what I pictured. You know, maybe we could make some adjustments, that kind of thing. But I've always been very lucky with the covers. I still think that's quite a diplomatic way to do it. I'm not very, I'm not quite happy. How does it feel to see the final book in physical form? It's always a little bit surreal because a book exists for so long in my own head and then just in variously named documents on my computer that go through many rounds of edits. To hold the final product is always satisfying and it feels like a group effort in a lot of ways because there's always a lot of people with me behind the scenes making everything come together so it just feels like the culmination of a lot of hard work and it's just satisfying and always really really exciting because I know that readers will soon be picking it up. To introduce all of our listeners to the book because the book is brand new The Right Cause Can Topple a Kingdom. Once upon a time, the kingdoms of Wales were rife with magic and conflict. An 18-year-old, okay, we might butcher the names, uh, Myriad? Myriad, I'm probably butchering it too. I just always refer to her as Mare. (laughs) It's Mare. Myriad, for hopefully the last time, Mare, is well acquainted with both. As the last living water diviner, she can manipulate water with magic, a unique elemental power many would kill to possess. For years, Mer has been running from the prince who bound her into his service and forced her to kill thousands with her magic. Now, all Mer truly wants is a safe, quiet life far from power and politics. But then Mer's old handler, 
the king's spymaster, returns with a proposition. Use her powers to bring down the very prince that abused them both. Where did your inspiration for the book come from? So as you might know, I wrote a previous novel set in the same world. It was called The Bone Houses, and it was my loose retelling of The Cauldron of Rebirth. So of course, I turned it into a zombie tale. (laughs) That's what I like to do. I spent a lot of years working on that book, doing research. I traveled to Wales to make sure I got all the sensory details right. Even though my father's side of the family is Welsh, I'd never actually visited before, and it was very inspiring. And as I was doing my research, I found mention of Cantrer Gwaelod, which is, of course, a sunken kingdom where Cardigan Bay now exists. And the idea of a fallen kingdom was like catnip to me. I began looking into myths about it, and in some of the variations of the myths, I found mention of a young woman who was the reason that the kingdom fell. She was supposed to be tending a magical well. The well kept the ocean at bay. However, all of the tales blamed her, saying that her inattention or something she did went wrong, and it led to the well being destroyed and the kingdom being flooded. So as I'm reading all of these, I'm thinking, well... Would she say the same, or would her tale be different? So I decided to write the story from her perspective. Of course she would be blamed for not paying attention. So how did you name your characters for the story? Well, luckily for me, Mare actually came pre-named. I found a few older variations of the myth, and she did actually have a name, so I was very excited to use that. As for everyone else... I have spent a lot of time on lists of medieval Welsh names, probably so that my internet provider thinks that I have like 200 kids. I'm always (laughs) on these baby name sites. I think a lot of us writers do that. (laughs) So I tried to find names that would still feel, you know, medieval, but I can pronounce some of them anyways. (laughs) So your internet provider thinks you birthed a medieval Welsh village. Oh, definitely. (laughs) Based on how many times I've looked up, you know, lists of baby names. It's not even just this book. I probably have like 500 kids, according to the internet. (laughs) You've sort of touched on this, but the story is set in Wales. It's full of Welsh folklore. What was the original inspiration for a story in Wales? Well, my paternal grandfather was from North Wales, and I grew up reading a lot of Welsh myths and folklore. It also helped that I think for a lot of us, we have one book that gets us into reading. And for me, that book was The Book of Three by Lloyd Alexander, which is based in Welsh myths. So when it came when I was an adult to write my own fantasy series, that was the first thing I thought of was the Chronicles of Bredain, all the Welsh folklore. I wanted to look at it and just take my own time to explore it. I think that's really cool. It's not one of the mythologies that most people tend to gravitate towards. I mean, we both love Greek myth and I don't want to say that it's overdone, but to be able to get a taste of Welsh myth and folklore through people's writing who have this sort of passion for it is is really, really nice. There's so much to be explored in Welsh myths that I feel like a lot of people don't realize a lot of, you know, the King Arthur myths are based in Welsh mythology. And there's so much to be explored that I'm hoping maybe other writers will pick up where I've left off and explore the wealth of folklore and myths that exist. Hopefully they will, because the world that you tapped into with this book is is so beautiful. Thank you. I don't know how to pronounce this. The Keffel... Keffel Durer is how I was told to pronounce it. Okay. <laughs> God. Water horses. There we go. Okay. The, the Keffel Durer, or water horses, is the song that the children sing. So is this song real or did you make it up? I spent three days making that song up, which taught me two things. One, I should never, ever be a songwriter. And two, 
I never need to put any poem or song or anything <laughs> in my books again, because, yeah, three days of trying to write that. <laughs> I'm glad with the result, but yeah, it was just a lot of work for, I think it was like six lines. But I felt like, you know, in our day and age, we do have kids songs about scary things. And so I thought it would make sense in this fantasy world to have kids singing about dangers, including magical monsters. And obviously water horses are beautiful and terrifying. And I thought it'd just make a lot of sense for kids to be singing about that kind of thing. Oh, kids love creepy stuff. And it seemed realistic. I believed that it could have been a, a rhyme that children played in the in the playground. Mm. Oh, thank you. I tried. <laughs> I wanted to make it seem pretty authentic, even though, yeah, like I said, I should never, ever do that again. <laughs> you include a legend of Igithruin, a wild boar. Is this a real legend or did you also make this up? Uh, this is also, um, this is a real legend. I was looking up all of the different monsters in Welsh mythology, and there are actually several giant boars running around to the point where in one of the discussions the characters have, there is a bit of confusion about which magical boar they're going to be facing because there's more than one, which I just thought was very fascinating. Um, several of them relate to King Arthur and various jobs that the knights had to do to like hunt them down or fight them and go through all this trouble to defeat them. So when I was thinking, what would be a monster that would make anyone think twice? Because there's going to be Oh, well, with treasures, wouldn't people try to rob it? Well, maybe not if the king of boars was guarding it. If you ask me my top five scary monsters, I wouldn't put a boar in there. But, you know, I wouldn't want to cross one because those tusks, they could do some damage. They're terrifying. I've never actually met one in person, but... I've seen pictures and I would definitely not want to meet one. And the idea of a giant boar coming after me, that is just nope, 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 nope on all the levels. <laughs> so the story has characters, Myrrh and Fane, who possess different kinds of magic. This isn't a spoiler because it becomes apparent quite early on in the book. What made you pick these kinds of magic? Well, for Mare, it made sense that her magic was going to be water-based because her fate in the myths is to be tied to a magical well. And I thought it was very fascinating to take kind of an element that a lot of people overlook because water's everywhere. It's in rivers, it's in us, it's in the air, and figure out what a person could do with it if they had power over it. So it was kind of a fun thing to explore. And I did what I hope is a few creative things with it in the book especially when it comes to things like creating mists to cover, you know, her allies as they're escaping people or using water to create ice so people slip coming after her. I just like the idea of taking something that is all around us and seems very innocuous and turning it into something dangerous. And as for Fane, his magic is a wish gone awry, which this is one of the things that I just love playing with as a writer I think it's because I read The Monkey's Paw at a very young, informative age, which, you know, is your sort of story about making wishes and then wishing you hadn't made them. But for Fane, of course, his wish is to avenge his family. And he accidentally gets cursed with death, basically. If he strikes anyone, he has to fight them to the death. And now, of course, he's entirely sick of that, doesn't want to hurt anyone, and just can't touch anyone for fear of accidentally killing them, which for Fane, who's deeply lonely, just seems like the ultimate wish Conneray. I thought what you did with Mer's character and Mer's magic was so badass. Like the, the things that she did, like with the mist and the ice, you would never it's something most people would never think about. And yeah, it was it was so cool, the stuff that she could do. Yeah, I had a lot of fun trying to figure out, you know, if I had power over magic with water, what exactly would I be doing with it? And you could get up to some pretty sketchy stuff. I like the idea of being petty and the ice and making people slip over. Like if someone was rude to me, just a little bit of ice on the ground would make them slip. No one would ever <laughs> know. 
Exactly. One of my favorite comments in the very first chapter was when Mare decides to just create mud outside of the doorsteps of all the kids she doesn't like. So they like just keep stepping in the sucking mud every morning. See, I was thinking it'd be really handy to have her on your side if you ever get stranded, because then you'll always be able to find water. But yeah, we'll go with Lawrence Petty. <laughs> Petty ice. Yeah, all the mud. That was that was brilliant. And the fact that even from a young age, she was being so creative with it, I thought was really cool. <laughs> I mean, I feel like kids are just super creative. So if you did give a kid magical powers, they would immediately be exploring in ways that a lot of us wouldn't even think about. So when we meet Mer, like properly as an adult, she is working as a barmaid. And we know that she's run away from her old life. So what brings Mer to the bar? Because my theory is that landlords, especially sort of medieval style landlords, wouldn't have tended to ask many questions. I did actually think about this. And the answer is the landlord and owner of the bar, her name is Karis. She kind of adopts teenagers that are runaways. As mentioned, there's one other person living there and working there who is quiet. His name's Elgar. And I figure Karis just sees these kids and is like, all right, you're running from something. You can work here for cheap, have a place to live, whatever. And it was just really good luck that Mare ended up stumbling into her and finding a place to live for a few months that was safe. Fane has a corgi for company. And the corgi tends to sneeze when magic is in the air, which I loved. I thought that was really cute. Was Fane always accompanied by a dog or did that come about as your story developed? Trevor was always going to be there. One thing I like to include in a lot of my books are animal companions because I grew up very rural on a farm. And so I always had animals around and I just can't imagine living a life without some kind of animal around. So I decided to, in the bone houses, the animal companion was a goat because goats are fun. Goats are loyal. Goats are smart. If anyone can survive a zombie story, it's going to be a goat. And for this one, I was thinking it needs to be an animal that is still identifiably Welsh, but needs to be a little more magical than a goat. And so, of course, I was looking at all the tales of corgis as being messengers and steeds for the fae. And I thought, hmm, all right, we've got magical corgis running around. Why has no one done this before? So I decided to create a dog that may or may not be a spy because, I mean, they're magical, but they're also spending a lot of their time eating cheese and napping. So how good a spy can they really be? <laughs> well, maybe it's a double bluff. Yeah, he was the ultimate MVP for me. Uh, just He was the goodest boy in the whole world. And I would give him all of the cheese that he wanted. I really had a lot of fun writing him. Writing dogs is just always enjoyable because I do like dogs. I like cats. And writing a dog that was just kind of doing his own thing a lot of the time, but still adorable, was just a fun little exercise. I don't think this is a spoiler, but Fane tells Mer she was the only one who greeted Trevor. And the moment happened earlier on in the book, but then they talk about it later. And was it meant to be foreshadowing that she could be trusted? It was very deliberately foreshadowing that she could be trusted. There's a trope in storytelling that is called pet the dog. And it's when a morally gray character does something that indicates they're a decent person. And so I decided for Mare, this was going to be her literal pet the dog moment. Because yes, she is morally gray, but also she loves dogs. She's trying to do the right thing sometimes. And also I just really liked writing Mare and Fane as like, dog people and that's why they would initially trust one another despite being part of a crew that really doesn't trust one another a lot of the time but they could both bond over the fact that they like his dog so this is the point of the episode where if you haven't read the book but now you really want to you should stop listening come back once you've read the book because we're moving into spoilers when nothing is off limits and this does include the ending so we learn quite early on that i'm assuming Ren renfrew yes okay good i got one correct renfrew comes from her at the bar to recruit her on a mission if you were mer with magical water powers not as you are now would you have agreed 
I would probably have gone just because, I mean, the temptation of trying to seek a treasure and do something that no one else has ever done before is definitely one that would tempt me. I think I'm a little bit more like Ivana in that I'm less driven by money and more driven by like, I want to do something that other people haven't done yet. So the idea of going on a heist that no one had ever pulled off would be very tempting for me. I think if you've got powers, it it, it is infinitely more tempting. Like as a regular person, I would never. Oh yeah, like as I am now, I you couldn't pay me enough to go on a heist. I would be the worst person. <laughs> but also she doesn't really have anything to lose. No. She doesn't really have anything to lose by going. And she potentially has everything to gain because he's going to keep finding her and tracking her right yes the whole idea that uh, how much are we allowed to spoil here (laughs) everything okay so the whole point that comes up later is that Renfrew deliberately brought guards that would arrest her so taking away all of her choices in that moment Renfrew's the type of character that plans for every contingency so he initially asks her she says no And then she gets arrested, and this is again presented as, this is your only option, and that's when she says yes. And yeah, you're right, that she has absolutely nothing to lose at this point, because Renfrew has systematically taken everything from her. He's taken her temporary home, he's killed all the other water diviners, so there are no others for them to work with. So yeah, at this point, it is kind of her only way out. Was she suspicious at this point that she didn't really have much of a choice? I feel like she'd probably be a little bit suspicious, but when it comes to people who are your parents or even parent adjacent, there is just this instinct often to trust them, even if you're not entirely sure you should. And Renfrew was the closest thing that Mare had to a parent after she was eight. And so I think the instinct was... She wanted to believe in him, even if she knew she probably shouldn't. So between them, they recruit a band of misfits to carry out the heist. Was it always your intention to have six very different characters make up this group? Yes, I always knew who was going to be in the heist. There were always going to be the three main characters, which are, of course, Mare, Fane, and Ivana. And then the three side characters, Renfrew, Griff, and Emric. In my outline, I actually do refer to Griffin Emmerich as red shirts because I knew of them weren't going to make it through the whole thing. But I always knew that with heists, it's very much an ensemble structure with heist stories. You need a group of people that have very different skill sets, very different personalities, because I feel like part of the reason I love heist stories, both writing them and watching them and reading them, is taking a bunch of characters who would have never otherwise worked together and forcing them into close proximity and then just watching the banter fly. So I had a lot of fun with that. Because I think quite often in those kind of stories, the characters don't actually like each other very much. It's true. I feel like I had a lot of fun writing Emmerich in particular because no one really likes Emmerich, even though I sort of liked him. But it made for some really fun dialogue where it's just... Mare having fun poking and prodding Emmerich because, you know, he's the only one she can really prod at without any kind of recourse. So that was a lot of fun to write. Poor Emmerich. Right? (laughs) Poor Emmerich. He goes through a hard time. Did you deliberately write a couple of them to just be able to kill them off at the beginning? Um, Yes and no. Emmerich existed because his dialogue was just way too much fun. I did consider... When I was looking at the novel as a whole, I was wondering if six characters was perhaps too many. And if I was going to get rid of one, it probably was going to be Emmerich. But he provided some dialogue that no one else could do. He presided some banter that I couldn't really achieve otherwise. And he is the first character to die. He is that red shirt, as I like to say, you know, in the Star Trek episode when someone dies first. And I had to prove that these sea caves are dangerous. The magic's don't screw around, someone's going to bite it. So, Also, there's a little in-joke that the thing that really kills him is the fact that he is carrying a heavy bag of books and that's what slows him down because there's this ongoing joke with me and my friends that if I ever die in a zombie apocalypse or something, it's going to be because I won't leave my books behind. So I decided to (laughs) kill him the way I would probably bite it on an adventure. (laughs) 
I like at the end that Ivana says we're not taking books. <laughs> After seeing that, she's like, we're not taking books. It's true. Yeah, Ivana learned. She's like, nope, nope, we're not leaving. We're leaving this all behind. We're taking people. Everything else can stay. He was advised to leave the books behind as well. And yet, he didn't. So, <laughs> that's what he gets. I thought he was quite a good tool as well for because he educated some of the others about kind of the magic and sort of characters or the, the sort of thing that you, yeah, the characters you had in myths and legends. And we sort of learned things along with some of the other characters in the group from Emmerich, which I always quite like, I like sort of learning alongside with the characters. Yeah, he was very good at conveying information. So mm. I had fun with him. Kind of wish I didn't have to kill him, but, you know, we have to kill some characters. I have a question about about you killing him later. <laughs> I mean, I killed a lot of characters in this book, so. <laughs> it's something about him specifically. I have to say, out of, out of the group, I actually really liked Renfrew. I know he's the baddie, uh, essentially the baddie. He was the spy master. He did some very, very questionable things. But I actually liked that as a tutor, he really challenged Mer. He was cunning. He always had two escape routes. He always planned for every eventuality. Did he really have to die? Yes, he did. Um, I love Renfrew. He's actually one of my favorite characters. So you're not alone there. I really like characters that are not easily pinned down. Renfrew is a man who's undoubtedly done some very terrible things but he's always done them for what he thinks are the right reasons, which of course doesn't justify them, but it does make it far more difficult to just write him off and call him a villain because he's doing his best to save humanity from a war that he thinks it's never going to be able to win and could be the entire kingdom's, like all the kingdom's downfall. So he's desperately doing his best to try to keep all of humanity alive, even if it costs one kingdom. And He's just, he was a fun character to write. He was a fun character to play with. But I always knew that, unfortunately, he'd always planned to die on this mission. And there really was no way to keep him alive during it. I really liked him too. And I quite enjoyed that realize, that moment of realization for Mer. So they've got to the island and she acknowledges that, oh, he's not told us about an escape route. But it's because there wasn't one. He has left absolutely nothing to chance. And they just assumed, oh, he'd tell us later. But no, there just wasn't one. Yeah, that was... I had fun with that because it was my first real bit of foreshadowing for the fact that this was not a straight-up heist as had been previously indicated. Because, yeah, Renfrew's thing is you always have two escape routes. And he gave them not even one escape route. It was just, we're going to this island. And I'll tell you how we get away once we're there. And of course he does. I assumed it was kind of a need to know basis and he had all this information uh, in his head, but he would impart it as he needed to, but obviously not. We first meet Renfrew when he finds Mer and he offers her father money in exchange for her. Did he do this with many other children of value? Because we only get Mer's perspective and she doesn't really mention other children, but I could see that it could have happened. This was very much a special case because in this world, diviners or humans who are born with elemental magic are rare and getting rarer because of how much iron is being spread across the island and iron repels magic. And to discover a water diviner in one's kingdom was very much like stumbling on a gold mine. So I imagine that as soon as it was well known, the prince sent Renfrew to just Go get this girl at any costs. I don't care what you have to do. And it was the one time that Renfrew actually did kind of adopt a child as his apprentice because, well, the prince got Mare, took one look at her and was like, oh, it's an eight-year-old girl. That's not quite the weapon I was imagining. Call me when she's older. Renfrew was looking at her going, I could shape her into something very dangerous. And so he decided to go for it. Matt tells the story... And she tells stories throughout this story that she was Renfrew's apprentice and they had lessons. But she tells a particular story of stealing Renfrew's keys and sneaking off to the dungeons. She ends up seeing the prince hurt someone 
and says that she realised that Renfrew must have known she took the keys. But it was so obvious. Like, how did she not clock that? Because he never missed anything. As soon as she took them, I was like, he, he's letting her take them. Yeah, definitely. Kids always think they're getting away with more than they <laughs> actually are getting away with, in my experience. Kids are always like, oh, I totally managed to fool my parrot as I sneak this handful of candy away. Meanwhile, the parents are like, yeah, we, we know you're carrying candy away. We're just letting you. And I feel like this is a valuable lesson, particularly for Mare at this age, because she's starting to test boundaries. And uh, Renfrew knew exactly what she was going to find in that dungeon. And so he decided to just let her see and discover exactly what happens to people who betray the prince. So this was his little way of just being like, all right, you want to see what happens in the dungeons? All right, see what happens in the dungeons. There's a well that has been hidden within Gwaelod. I'm yes. just looking at you for confirmation of, pronu- of all of the pronunciation. Yeah, Gwaelod is okay, good. <laughs> good. So without its magic, the kingdom would lose protection. So later we find out that the twil- Twilwith Teg... <laughs> with Tay. Close enough. Okay, good. <laughs> we're good. Uh, other folk were the original owners of the well. So as a water diviner, how had Mern never heard of this well? I imagine this is one of those state secrets that certain people who have security clearance know about and others just you don't tell them. Um, this was very much the prince knew about it, his spy master knew about it, his close council members knew about it, and no one tell the girl who's got water magic because that could end badly. I imagine that the prince would have taken care to make sure that his little potential water diviner assassin that he bound into his service would never ever know about his one weakness. So I think it was a combination of just certain state secrets are kept close and yeah, really don't let that person know. That makes sense. I wasn't sure about that. I didn't know if it was like a common thing that everyone knew, like just local myth and legend. But no, that makes a lot of sense. I figured it's one of those things where you might hear rumors, but you don't really know if it's true or not. It's like, you know, a rumor, an urban legend. Eh, could be true, could be not. You'll probably never find out. One of the six is to find this well is Fane and his backstory is so sad we learn that as a child his father had refused to unlock a door and his punishment was for the family home to be burnt down which then led Fane orphaned Fane took his anger and he made a pact with the other folk in order to exact revenge but realized that revenge he sought would leave someone else orphaned so my question to you is what was behind the door This is one of those times when I can just be like, it's up to the reader to decide what was behind that door. I don't actually know. I imagine it was something very valuable that a bunch of mercenaries would be willing to kill someone over. So could be treasure, could be magic. I like the idea because things sometimes just happen and we never find out why. There's no rhyme or reason to some tragedies. And for Fane, he never will discover exactly what was so valuable that was worth massacring his whole family. It's just always going to be this thing he will never know. Because I'm a mean writer like that sometimes. (laughs) If he'd seen that particular mercenary in a different scenario, so he meets him and he sees him at home with with one of his children. But if he'd seen him, say, on on the street, do you think he'd have killed him? Definitely. One thing I do like about putting Fane in that situation was it's easy to dehumanize people when you see them in situations that you expect them to be in. For example, he only knew this one particular man as a mercenary that had killed his family. So if Fane had seen this mercenary on the road being a mercenary, he could have just said like, oh, you're off to do bad things again. I will kill you and I will feel morally justified in doing that. But by forcing Fane to follow him to this man's family home, to see his wife, his kid, to hear a lullaby that Fane himself grew up with, it just struck Fane in that moment that killing him wouldn't be justice. It would just create another tragedy. 
it forced Fane to confront the fact that sometimes tragedies can't be answered with more tragedies. You just have to stop the cycle at some point. So that was the moment of Fane's realization that he screwed up that wish. He doesn't want this wish anymore. And I had a lot of fun writing that with him. We also meet Ifana. She's a top thief and her and Mare have a history. Now Mare has to break her out of prison. But do you know what she was in prison for? <laughs> um, accidental hostage taking. She <laughs> stole a wagon that had a bunch of valuables in it and didn't realize there was a drunk nobleman's son in the back sleeping off his hangover. So I imagine she like got out of the city, was like, cool, I've got my wagon full of valuables. And then this young man wakes up in the morning and is like, what's for breakfast? And scares her and the horse half to death. And she ends up getting caught and then charged with kidnapping because she accidentally kidnapped him. So I like the idea that Merit and Ivana are both criminals, but Ivana, she has more of a lighthearted criminal past than Mare does. I needed at least one character who wasn't constantly riddled with angst. <laughs> so I had a lot of fun with Mare and Ivana's differences, and Ivana in particular, just being kind of the lighthearted I one. I loved Ivana. I thought she was, she brought that lightheartedness that you needed. And I felt like she didn't take a lot of things very seriously. Yeah, I like having, you know, she, I wouldn't call her just like the straight up comic relief character, but she's definitely the character who is watching everything play out and quietly going, wow, this is bonkers. And I just like having the character who's kind of probably thinking sometimes what the audience is thinking. But I do like that when she gets serious about something, you know the situation is serious because she takes so very little seriously. And the joke about, you know, she never stops smiling. She's going to keep smiling to her death just to annoy everybody. So like the few scenes in which she is not smiling, you know that's when things have gone very, very wrong. Ivana has two moms and a love history with Mer. Was this important for you to include? It was. One thing I take great care with when I'm writing fantasy is what I choose to include and what I choose not to include. Because it's fantasy. It's up to me. I'm creating this world. And while it's rooted in history, we deal with sexism and homophobia enough in the real world. And I wanted to create one that was just without it. So women are equally powerful in this world as men. They're serving in the armies. They're working as spies and assassins. And I want a world in which no one cared that Mare is bi. She's just bi, and it's part of her past. Like, we have two married women running a thieves' guild, and the most important thing is don't cross them because they will come after you. I just, I wanted to create a fantasy world without a lot of the baggage that we're already dealing with. So, yeah, it was important to I me. thought that was really awesome. When I played Skyrim, my char- my female character married a female shopkeeper and they adopted a couple of kids and had this really cute little family and it was nice. I love video games where you can do that. It's just, yeah, I love Skyrim too. I need to get back and play it again. It's been a while. Just going off topic slightly, my favourite thing was my kids in Skyrim adopted a fox and my partner was playing and their kids adopted a crab and they were so angry that it was a crab because it's like the one of the worst <laughs> pets you can have and there's just this crab scuttling around the house whereas yeah I've got a fox it's like that is one of the best pets you can have <laughs> that's amazing I love that I actually have never managed to like build a house in Skyrim yet so I haven't had the experience of adopting a pet my character just keeps wandering around accidentally being like turned into a vampire and I didn't realize I've been turned to a vampire until my character was like smoking in the sunlight and being like i need blood i was just like oh you're a vampire now when did that happen yeah when you adopt the kids they will just come home with a pet and you don't know what it is and they'll ask you to keep it and then yeah you're stuck with with whatever pet they bring home and yeah the crab (laughs) is great the crab is not good (laughs) oh i need to get there i need to play that i've never played it you're missing out although i don't yeah, although I don't think you're, you're not a gamer. So. Not really. <laughs> I like ones you can dip in and out of. It takes over way too much of your life yeah, as well. I like ones you can you can like pick up, play for a little bit and then put down. I'm not I'm not someone who can spend ages like building the world and too busy reading. <laughs> oh no, this takes over your whole life, this game. I love gaming just because 
one thing that changes when you become a professional writer is I used to write for fun because, you know, writing was my hobby. It was my way of de-stressing. But when I became a published author, it was suddenly my job. And it definitely, when you take a hobby and turn it into your career, it changes your relationship with that thing. So writing became this kind of thing where I was like, okay, you are my actual job now. I have to sit down and work on you. And I needed a hobby that wasn't writing. So I took up gaming and I have never looked back. 10 out of 10 would recommend. I've had a lot of fun with it. So we have Renfrew and Ivana, Mare and Fane. And plus Griff, who we haven't really mentioned yet, but we'll ask about him in a minute. When the group finally find the well, they're placed under a spell that shows their worst nightmares. How did you decide on each nightmare? When I'm sketching out characters, um, there are two questions that I have to know about every single character, even the minor ones. And it's, what do they want the most? And what are they most afraid of? And usually in a good book, you take those two things and you make them collide because that's how you get character development. But with all of these characters, when I was sketching them out, I was writing down their hopes, their fears. And I didn't actually know that I was going to include like a nightmare spell when I was first drawing out the story. Some plot details kind of come about as you're creating them. And when I got to the well, I wanted there to be, there's sort of three barriers to get to the well's treasures. And in fairy tales, there's often three things that you have to get past. So the first is, of course, the water horses. The second is the nightmare spell. And the third is the boar. And so with the nightmare spell, I sat down and I was thinking, okay, I know what everyone's most afraid of. Time to like have this play out. And it was actually a lot of fun to explore. Like even characters with never made it. Like Emmerich didn't make it to the nightmare spell because... Yeah, that bag of books ended him, but I knew what it would have been if he'd been there. I think it's just part of drafting all the characters is what am I absolutely going to make them terrified of? So obviously now you have to tell us what Emmerich's would have been. <laughs> well, with Emmerich, it definitely would have been um, the reason he joined the heist was because he was heavily in debt due to gambling. And Emmerich's worst fear would have been having to face his family after that. So... He was trying to find a way to recoup his losses without disappointing his family. So the idea of like facing his parents and his siblings as a failure was his absolute worst fear. Not losing all his books. Nope, nope. <laughs> Although in hindsight, that would have been kind of amazing. Just like him losing all the books in the world. That also would be a really bad nightmare. We learned the real reason that Ivana traded in Mer's location was to save 30 others. Do you think you might have done the same in her position? This is one of those questions that's really hard to answer because honestly, I don't know how any of us would react in that situation. It's the age old trolley problem. Do you sacrifice one life to save a bunch? What if that life belongs to someone you love? Would you sacrifice yourself? I don't think any of us until we're actually placed in a situation would know. And one thing that I did have kind of fun playing with is thinking, how would all of these characters react? And Ivana's answer is, of course, she is, I don't want to say cutthroat enough, but she's practical enough to sacrifice one life for 30, knowing that, yes, that is a deal. It is the matter of the needs of the many versus the needs of the few. And also, I think it was her preemptively armoring herself against a romantic relationship too because one thing that was becoming clear as she was growing into her role as leader of the thieves guild is that the job has to come before her relationships and this was her realizing that oh no i'm not sure if i can do both so she kind of preemptively screwed up her relationship before it could hurt her even more but you've got her two moms that are running the thieves guild together i do uh, they are married they're running it very well together. But Mare, on the other hand, would have had problems coming out as like one of the head leaders because then she would have had to reveal her position to the prince who would have had issues with that. So Mare was always going to be in the position that she was hiding within the Thieves' Guild so she couldn't lead it. It would have been far too dangerous for both her and the guild. So I took it as one of the first examples of her starting to become the leader that she would by the end of the book. Yes, very much so. This was 
Ivana making a decision that hurt her personally, but was better for the guild than it was for her and her lover, basically. My heart broke when we got to Griff's memory and his nightmare. And because it was his wife and his child dying due to the poisoned well. And we discovered that Myrrh had run away because the wells that she found were poisoned by the prince. And we find that this is why Griff came along to the trip as Myrrh was involved and he wanted to make sure that she was poisoned or killed by the end. But do you think that had they not gone, had had the well not had that spell, would he have revealed himself? Is there ever a point that without that nightmare, he would have revealed himself? I feel like there are some secrets that are too painful to ever utter aloud. And for Griff, that was his one secret that would have died with him if the well's nightmare spell hadn't basically forced it into Mare's brain as well. He went on this trip. He was one of the few characters besides Renfrew, it was just those two, that knew this was a suicide mission. And Griff did not care because, as you said, he was there for one reason, which was to ensure that Mare who he held responsible for his family's death, was killed. And his history was very, very sad. I admit to shedding a few tears as I was writing his history because it's very tragic. And whether or not, like, Mare is wholly to blame or the prince, he just decided to focus all of his anger on her. And so he went on this trip knowing that this was going to be the end for him. I don't think he ever would have revealed it I think his way of revealing it would have probably just to like stab Mare in the back at some point after they found the well. That would have been like his way of getting back at her. But of course, then everything goes awry and he does not get that. She's an easier target than the prince. Exactly. It's hard to go after a royal, but she's, you know, just a girl running around in much more accessible locations. So... And also, I think there was a bit of like, all right, you killed my family. I'm going to make sure your whole kingdom drowns now. So there was definitely a bit of... He was taking revenge on the prince as well, but for him, it was more personal that he take down Mare because she was the reason that the prince could find all of those wells. Renfrew was a surprise for me. So he pitches the, the whole thing as a heist to steal this treasure. But then you find out he's a mastermind or the mastermind behind a completely different plan. And the events earlier in the book with the shopkeeper, he'd done that to try and make Mer think that she'd been betrayed by Ivana. I remember messaging Charlotte when they got to the island and I asked her who she thought had betrayed them because I suspected Griff. And this is my question about Emmerich's death. Griff had the iron filings with him, but he waited a really long time to use them. And it felt like he allowed Emmerich to die. And then he got them out. Um, I feel like that was more he was saving those iron filings for a different magical creature. And that creature was Mare. Um, he was definitely armed to deal with someone who could do magic. He just was not anticipating being attacked by a bunch of water horses. So he was holding on to those iron filings for as long as he possibly could before he was finally just like, okay, fine. I'm going to have to use them to survive this. So Emmerich was just, his death wasn't so much deliberate as he just wasn't worth saving. Gosh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but see, that doesn't surprise me. I wasn't sure if it was a deliberate thing or he just thought, eh, you're not important enough. But that made me suspect that Griff was something... There's something not quite right there. Yeah, it's good to know Like some people are catching on with that. Because I've wondered, with heist stories, it's definitely a balance of foreshadowing. Because you know you want the clues to be there that someone's going to betray them. But you don't want to make it so obvious that everyone knows it before you get there. So I'm glad that there are a few little tip-offs, but not entirely sure. Well, you definitely hinted at it when they went to the shop. And that went a bit wrong. And that's when I started looking at people a little bit. But I had reasons why I, I rejected the others. I didn't think it was Renfrew because the whole thing was his plan. I didn't think it was Ivana because I didn't think she'd have done it twice. And Emmerich just, 
and this is going to sound really mean, he just didn't seem important enough to have been the one to betray them. <laughs> so then when you put the iron filings in, it's like, hmm. I just didn't think it was Fane. So that made me think Griff, but I just couldn't, I couldn't quite pinpoint motivation. Yeah, I liked having six characters because it does create more opportunity for there to be a mole and to not know who that mole is. Or many moles in this case. I was also genuinely like lol when she said, oh, I assumed he was flirting with me because he kept looking at me. But then she found out he was staring at her because he wanted to kill her. Yeah, I did have a little bit of fun with that where I'm just like, <laughs> oh, yeah, well, I mean, he's cute. He's staring at her. Could be interpreted as flirty. But yeah, I mean, well, Griff is sitting there like, you are so going to die and it's going to be great. <laughs> I can imagine he might look at her and smile as well and because he's thinking, oh, this is what's going to happen. And she's like, oh, he's cute. He's smiling. Mm -hmm. And there's also that the bit as well where they're talking about the different skills of the group and it comes up that there's a poisoner and he's like, oh, who's the poisoner? And obviously because of who Renfrew is, you expect, I ex assumed it was Renfrew, but she Griff, in Griff's mind, he knew who the poisoner was and the poisoner was her, even though she didn't do it herself. She was partially responsible. Yeah, one thing I really liked about that conversation was when Mare's listing off, you know, poisoner, soldier, killer, like all of them. It's that all of those titles, almost all of them, could be applicable to more than one character. And so that was my little nod of, yes, you don't know who quite everyone is in this crew. You don't know what their role is. You don't know what they're capable of. So, yeah, I had fun with that. I genuinely thought, except poisoner, though, and was like, oh, Renfrew. Renfrew is the poisoner. It never occurred to me that could be someone else. Yeah, definitely. It depends on who you're asking in that crew. Like, what role are they playing? Because yes, Griff definitely would have answered Mare. Mare would have answered someone else. And yeah, it's a whole thing. So once they find the well, and they realize that it is basically a suicide mission, and the ocean is going to flood the island, Mare ends up holding off the ocean to give everyone time to escape. She does that so that they can go and they can save as many people as possible. Is she trying to absolve herself from the poisoned well incident? I do believe it was one part repenting for past mistakes, because even though Mare wasn't really responsible for those wells, she found them, but she was never told what was going to happen to them. She didn't know until afterwards. So, I mean, arguably she did bear some responsibility for that, but what she really blames herself for is the fact that afterwards she ran and she did not go back and help those villages find new wells. She didn't try and save those wells and maybe remove any poisons that it would put in them, didn't try to purify them. She just had no thought except for her own survival. And one of the fun parts about writing this book was this journey of basically her discovering that in order for her to forgive herself, She's going to have to stop running and turn around and actually face her own choices and realize that, yes, she's made mistakes. And so this part in the book, I really enjoyed writing because it was one part repenting and one part, screw the universe, I get to choose what I'm going to do with my own powers. Because it was one of the few times after she was taken by Renfrew that she was using her powers solely because she wanted to rather than someone else dictating that she use them. So it was very much her choice that she save everyone as she could. And if she died in the process, that would be a price she was worth paying. Do you think even after saving people, she would ever forgive herself for the poisoned wells? I think it would have taken a long time, but I think she would get to the point where she would forgive herself for that. I imagine that she and Fane, you know, after they retire off to their own little village, would have time to visit the medieval equivalent of a therapist and just, you know, chill out a little bit afterwards. You know, raise their two dogs, build a house, come to basically look at their lives without blame as much as they can. Because, yeah, the whole point is everyone has screwed up in some way. Like, Fane has made mistakes, Mare has made mistakes, Avon has made mistakes. But you can't change the past, so you try to accept them and do things better in the future. Treffer has made no mistakes. 
<laughs> yeah, Trevor is completely flawless. <laughs> Although, who knows? I imagine that he was having his own adventures back at the heist house in that like 24-hour period in which Mare and Fane were recruiting Ivana. So maybe he made mistakes then. <laughs> no, he is he is flawless. I have to admit, it never occurred to me when when you first find out what happened with with the her finding the wells and then the prince poisoning the wells. It didn't occur to me that she could have she could have done something. So do you think she could have genuinely made a difference at the time, like Fane suggests? So on page two hundred and eighty seven, she has that moment where she's like, What if I what if she hadn't? What if she'd stayed in the village and used her powers to try and find new water sources for them? And then she has this kind of moment of realization, like, oh, um, I might have messed up here. I think she probably could have saved some lives because this actually was a way of warfare in the medieval times was to look for wells and just to dump bodies in them because it is extremely difficult to find fresh water sometimes. And I was doing research for this. I was like, wow, that is heartless and terrible on a lot of levels. Okay, have to put this in a book at some point. And Mare being able to find fresh water sources could have been <laughs> extremely valuable to these people. But, of course, she didn't. People probably couldn't find water afterwards. And, yeah, that's something she has to live with. One line that you wrote that I really liked was on page 100, sorry, page 274. And this is after the fame reveal. And... Mer had always considered herself a decent judge of liars, but she had forgotten it was possible to lie without ever uttering an untruth. Never once had Fane stated that he'd stopped working for the other folk. And I quite liked that. I thought that was... It's an interesting way to look at lying and omitting of detail. And Renfrew, you could see, this is the one thing he had not accounted on. I am very glad you liked that line. That was a little bit of an in-joke for me personally, because when it comes to writing and it comes to Fane's point of view, I had to be very careful about threading that line because I was writing from his perspective and I didn't want it to be obvious that he was there for a different reason that he, than he stated. So I didn't want the readers to feel betrayed at any point with that reveal. I think there's a very fine line when it comes to that sort of narrator that you can't quite trust. So I wanted to thread enough hints that it would make sense in hindsight, but without giving it away. So the whole line that you can lie without ever uttering an untruth is my little nod to the reader being like, all right, hopefully I pulled this off without making you mad. <laughs> I love that reveal. I thought it was great. Thank you. <laughs> In your opinion, what happened to the prince? Does he become a better per- uh, does he become a better person after all of this, or does he just keep carrying on? The prince is definitely not a good person. I don't think he's ever going to be a truly good person. But I imagine after his kingdom was flooded, he's off as a ruler in exile, probably hiding in a different kingdom, biding his time, quietly fuming at the dead Renfrew, just mad that he was outsmarted. But I do think, again, no one's wholly good, no one's wholly bad in this world. So while he was not a good person, he did do his best to try to save as many lives after he found out what was coming. So I liked the whole point of this book. You know, you think you're going into it. We're off to defeat an evil prince. And then the end, it's like, oh, no, we have to team up with the evil prince because <laughs> it's the only way to save a bunch of people. So I had fun just kind of taking that expectation and twisting it a little bit. And I do think it's realistic that not all the bad guys get, you know, their comeuppance. So he is probably, yeah, off in someone else's castle, eating some nice food, never having to deal with the fact that he has ruined a lot of lives. He seemed so genuinely surprised when Mer revealed why she was there. I think he thought she'd gone there to kill him. She was like, no, look, all this bad stuff's happened. And basically all these people are going to drown. So you need to, you need to do something good. He's like, what? You're not here to kill me. <laughs> yeah, I imagine that the moment he saw Mare, he was just like, oh no, oh no. I thought this was coming. Time to run. Because the dangerous part about having a diviner is the fact that diviners, I think, are very dangerous. You can do a lot with elements. Like, you know, 
air diviners, you could potentially suffocate someone, water diviners, I mean, get up to all sorts of things, metal diviners. It's all dangerous. So forcing one to work for you would be like keeping a tiger on a leash. So I think at this point, seeing Mare run up the hallway was very much a, oh no, the tiger's back moment. Did you ever consider an alternative where Mo was left dead? Or was it important for you to have a happy ending with Fane and, and Trevor? I mean, I'm so happy with the decision that you made to give them that happy ending. But I'm just curious. Um, in this case, I knew that she was going to come back for two reasons. First of all, um, as an author, when you killed a main character once in one of your books, <laughs> I feel like you've already scared the readers enough. <laughs> I, there is a book in which I did kill off a very main character, and I still to this day have readers yelling at me because of it. So I feel like at this point I've proven that I can kill a main character, and I might. But I also spent a lot of time in the bone houses working on the whole plot point of the cauldron of rebirth. And this was the little nod to the bone houses of like, this is the cauldron. This is how it's going to get to its next location. And I liked the symmetry of Thane's having his seven lives, like seven years of service for seven human lives. But that was never really specified as like seven lives you have to take. It was a life you could also give so I always knew that she was going to not stay dead permanently because it made sense thematically for Fane after taking six lives to be able to give one back. And the fact that, you know, Welsh mythology does have this cauldron that can bring back the dead, might as well use it. If you wrote something else in the same world, would the cauldron maybe pop up again? Probably not in this case. I feel like I've done two books now where the cauldron has made like appearances. So there are other myths that I would like to explore maybe someday in this world. We'll see if it happens, but there's just a lot to look at. So I think I'm pretty much done with the cauldron at the moment, but you never know. Maybe it could pop up again. I really liked the idea that the seventh life was given rather than taken. I thought that was a really clever way to, to play with the wish. Yeah, I liked the whole idea of once in a while, like you can take a fairy bargain that is very much working against you and turn it to your own advantage if you are clever enough. And after years of working alongside the folk and magic, Fane has a pretty good grasp of the trickery that can go into these bargains. And so he finally managed to make it work for himself. Do you think that the fairy folk would respect that kind of trickery as well? Oh, definitely. I imagine the folk are very much... <laughs> I always think of them as like the lawyers of the magical world and that they're very like with their own rules. But if you're smart enough to make those rules, like tweak them to your own advantage, they're like, okay, we're fine with that. Did you have a favorite character in this story? Oh, this is such a hard question. Um, I love Trevor, of course. Writing the Corgi was so much fun. But personally, I, as much as I love Mare and Fane, I think Renfrew was possibly just the most fun to write because he's just such a little sneaky dude. And every scene he was in, I was able to, you know, be like, what is he thinking? What are the layers going on in this scene? And so he just enhanced every scene I was working on because there's always at least two different things happening when Renfrew is talking. So as a writer, it was just a very interesting exercise. But yes, also Trevor, because he is the goodest of good boys. and It's very hard not to love a well-written, morally grey character. It's true. I definitely, most of my favourite characters in TV shows and books are usually like trickster characters a lot of the time. I very much love that archetype. So, I mean, my favourite shade is definitely morally grey. So I was, I was so <laughs> here for Renfrew. Yeah, he's just a fun guy overall, even though I know him. Like, in real life, I would absolutely not like him because he is kind of a monster, but he's just, in fiction, it's fine. It's fine. I like him. Thank you so much for coming to talk to us today. What do you have planned for the future? Uh, well, I just finished up working on edits for um, Unspoken Magic, which, in addition to writing my young adult novels. I also am working on a middle grade series. So a little bit younger, but still features a lot of the same things that I put in my writing, which are like animal companions. There's a raven instead of a corgi, magical forests, that kind of thing. And so my first one came out in February and the sequel comes out next February. And I just finished up working on that and it's off to, you know, 
all the final printing and it's just so exciting because I'm like I like writing for kids a lot I think there's a lot of fun in writing for middle grade because you can be a little bit more whimsical with young adult books I always take a lot of time to figure out the magic systems um, you know their prices their constraints I want to think out everything so like no teens can be like well you missed this one plot point because teens will really they'll tell you what they think they will not hold back if you mess something up. Um, with younger readers, it's a little easier to just kind of smudge over the details sometimes and be like, all right, we have a tea shop. It vanishes if you try to break in. No, we don't know why. So. <laughs> Where can people go to support you, find out about future plans and announcements? Um, I'm spending most of my time on Instagram these days. So if you want to follow me on Instagram, I'm also on Twitter. And I do have a website, which is just emilyloyjones.com, all one word. And I always put all my books and where to buy them on my website. So we will link that in our episode description so that all of our listeners will be able to find you and follow you as well. And Instagram is where I post all my cat pictures. So definitely recommend there. <laughs> And this is why we follow you. <laughs> I'm here. All of the cat content. Really what we're on the internet for, right? Thanks for hanging out with us today. And again, special thanks to Emily. Follow us on Instagram at Demythifying the Podcast for more book-based content. And if you're liking what we're doing, please rate us and subscribe. Also, check out our website at www.demythpod.co.uk. See you again next time and check us out wherever you get your podcasts. She's been Lauren, I've been Charlotte, and today we've been turning pages with Emily Lloyd-Jones. <laughs>